and welcome to the Undead Wookiee podcast, episode 47, The War Games from 1965. The Undead Wookiee is a fortnightly-ish podcast focusing on horror and sci-fi, but there will be times where we dip into other genres because here at the Undead Wookiee, our nerdiness knows no bounds. Hello and welcome back. Hope you're all well. Glad for you to be joining us on this fantastic episode. Like I said, we're going to be talking about the war games from 1965, and then we're going to be having a little discussion about some horror films that were never made, but what could have been. So before I introduce my very, very special, special co-host, let's check out the trailer. This could be the way the last two minutes of peace in Britain would look. a.m. A single megaton nuclear missile overshoots Manston Airfield in Kent and airbursts six miles from this position. At this distance, the heat wave is sufficient to cause melting of the upturned eyeball, third-degree burning of the skin, and ignition of furniture. Twelve seconds later, the shock front arrives. Okay, joining us once again, back for another swing. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the lethal one himself. It's Mr. Liam Jones. Liam, how the devil are you? Oh, not too bad, thank you. How are you you doing? I'm all right. We survived a week of treading the boards together. Yes, we did. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Sort of, uh, to say that it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I had a fantastic week. I got to be honest. It was great being back on the stage and it was fantastic to be there with you. I had a great time. First time, I think, the first time we've actually worked together on stage. It is, it is. And uh, I fear we may be destined to tread the boards again very, very soon. Oh, God. <laughs> now, everyone, everyone always does that thing when they say, oh, this will be my last one for a while, and everyone comes and everyone in the audition for the next one. Yeah. So they managed, they managed to rope you back, didn't they? So, yeah. It's a bit like The Godfather Part 3, isn't it? They always keep bringing you back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, we are talking The War Games from 1965. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a slight departure for us because... Me personally, I think this is one of the most terrifying. Oh God, yes! Docudramas um, ever made. I think it's one of the most terrifying films. Full stop. Yes. <laughs> yes, and without somebody sort of saying that this is an outright horror, I, mm. I think, in the truest sense of the word, this is an outright horror film. Oh, um, in, it's, in the most pure sense of the word. To say it's that there's not many laughs to be had in this. <laughs> Um, would be an overstatement. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very, very, very difficult to watch. It's a very, um, I think this podcast will probably be a bit more sober than some other ones. Yeah. You've done <laughs> yeah. the past. This will probably be a bit more, I think it'll be a bit more of a somber atmosphere. So we'll try to keep things light, but yeah. it's best, but when it's appropriate. I think the, um, I think the best way to, somebody once described this as, before the day after, 
and before Threads, um, there is the war game. And mm-hmm. if you were looking at a very, very realistic, very, very nihilistic outlook um, or a glimpse at what mm. would happen if uh, the nuclear bombs did start dropping. Yes, of course. Um, I think it's fair to say this is a very, very accurate, bleak, devastating picture of what happens or mm. what could happen. Yeah, of course. Um, of course, this was from 1965. It was directed um, by the equally controversial, but yet very, very, very talented Peter Watkins. Yeah. Um, it was written by Peter Watkins. It was produced by Peter Watkins. Um, the only real recognisable names in this is uh, Michael Aspel, who is the commentator mm-hmm. for the documentary. Um, Peter Graham uh, is also another name that pops up. Um, however, it, it, there are no real actors in this. Oh, they were all pretty much like most of Watkins' work. It's all people from the local area. So these are people who are living in and around Kent. So I yes. think a lot of the time you'd recruit people from, um, in terms of actors, possibly from like amateur dramatic societies. Like you'd visit the local, sometimes you'd visit like local theatre companies and get yeah. them yeah. involved. Also, you just get people off the street. Yes. Um, and I mean, this is a BBC docudrama. Um, it was its release date and its sort of its emergence uh, to the screen is a very, very interesting story in itself and could potentially be a great documentary on mm. its own. Um, to say that Peter Watkins butted heads with the establishment is an understatement. Um, but this is a film that just completely and utterly slaps you in the face. (laughs) And I mean, the fact that this even takes, you know, even has the idea of it being a conservative nuclear strike. Not the full out, out and out Armageddon. Yeah. That would more than likely take place, but this is a conservative... This is quite quite small scale. This is... Yes. Which it makes it terrifying in itself. If you think of that's what, if this is considered to be the conservative example of it, what's it going to be like if the whole, you know, whole thing goes off? Yes. And I mean, this is, um, it's black and white. Um, it's only 44 minutes long. Um, and in terms of its runtime, you, you get completely lost in it. Mm. And I think it's one of those things that even though it's 44 minutes long, it flies. It could have been two hours and it would have flown. Mm. Um, I'm, I've never been a fan of shaky cam. Mm. However, this is how you should use shaky cam. I think, well, Watkins, cause Watkins himself is considered to be the, um, not, I wouldn't say the founding father, but he's certainly the, one of the big innovators of like the docudrama form. And I don't think there's been many directors who've utilized it in quite the way in the, quite the way he has. No, no. And I mean, he came to people's sort of attention, didn't he, with the um, the docudrama uh, Culloden. Well, he'd sort of become a bit of a um, kind of bit known on the scene in the 50s. He was like working on a few short films, usually with it, like small, ca- with, you know, just friends and small companies. And he gained a bit of notice doing that. I believe um, 
and he did one called Forgotten Faces, which came out a couple of years before. Let's have a look at the date of that. But Forgotten Faces comes right before Culloden. Yeah. And his previous films had won like amateur awards for like amateur filmmakers. And in 1960, he did um, Forgotten Faces, which was a um, an 18 minute film all about the the Hungarian uprising of 1956. Right. And it's all filmed basically on one street somewhere in England. And it's all done up to look like it's, you know, it's, it's all done up to look like it's, you know, in Hungary during the uprising. And it just, it's always, it's a sort of precursor to what, what we'd know Watkins for now. Yes. So it's yes. got all the sort of that documentary mode. It's got all like the amateur actors. So it's quite, you know, it's, you can sort of see he's really testing what he's yeah. capable of. But Culloden, I think, was the first time where it sort of came, his style was sort of established. Yes. Because one of the things that's very interesting about him, you can put him in the context of what's known as food cinema, mm. which was a movement which emerged around about the 1960s. It was actually more associated with, like, Latin America and Africa. Yes. But the basic idea was they, they were a group of um, filmmakers, I think, from Argentina originally. And what they'd done, they'd, um, they sort of had a theory that there was three types of cinema. There was um, first cinema, second cinema, and third cinema. Right. First cinema is basically Hollywood cinema. Mm. So that's the um, anything which falls into the Hollywood sort of mode. So it's made a certain way, yes. and it exposes like a certain... It's some sort of escapism, yes. like escapist cinema. Then there's second cinema, which they refer to as like art cinema. So it's like European, like avant-garde cinema. Yeah, yeah. And third cinema was considered to be an alternative to both. Yes. So it had a lot of like some the artistic sensibilities of like um, of like the second cinema, but it also had this more political edge to it. Like mm. these films were more meant these films were built to agitate and educate. But the thing about them was they often went against the yeah. sort of norms of cinema. So they'd break conventions. You know, yeah. they would yeah. like like one of the films is called The Hour of the Furnaces, which is a very very long film, but it's from Argentina and it was all about. It was actually, a lot of these films were shown as tours. They used to tour them around South America. Yeah. yeah. And what they were doing, these were all films against, um, pretty much they were all, these were meant to be critical of like, um, American involvement in Latin America and all that. And the sort of, um, the exploitation going on in Latin America at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these films were meant to sort of inspire people to sort of take action and to get involved in, you know, sort of like in direct action and political action. Yes. So Watkins can sort of be seen as being a part of this. It's sort of like the British, the sort of British answer to this movement mm. in a way. Yeah. Like his films are often sort of, they've got this sort of agit prop side to it, but in fact they are, they agitate and they provoke, you know, they provoke reactions in people. They sort of make them, you know, they're making us ask questions. They're sort of, well, they're sort of demanding us to ask questions. You know, they're, they're putting the questions to us. And thus we need to, you know, asking us to ask, you know, question authority and yes, such. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say um, this does ask some very, very interesting questions. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, and there are moments in this that are so frightening mm. um, because you can, you know, and, and in some ways it's a very, very British re- response to a nuclear attack. Yes. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, in some ways, very sort of, um, very much a, a sort of Bar- a British response for this period of time. Mm. Um, Especially the Second World War is a bit in recent memory. Yes. Around about this time. And they kind of, you, you can see this idea of that they have not kind of cottoned on to the, the, the outright exactly. devastation that... Um, well, 
you can see that I think Watkins is criticizing the sort of that, you know, that blitz, the famous blitz spirit. Yes. Where she says, what, what was the spirit in World War Two? People can't get into their minds that it's a different world they're living in. Yes. That the technology has moved in so much since the Second World War. Yeah. yeah. And they think just, you know, sort of whistle while you work attitude and, you know, just keep calm and carry on. That's not going to cut it. It's no, not going to, no, that's not going to get us out of this. They have the sort of, uh, prior to the attack in a very, very British stiff upper way, um, pamphlets, pamphlets, yes. pamphlets are distributed to the, yes. to, to the two people. Uh, and the, uh, you know, the doc, the, 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 the voice, uh, the guy behind the camera asks the question. He said, well, is, was this information available before? And the, the response from the guy from the civil defense yes. is, oh, yes, yes, of course. And he says, well, was it free? And he says, no, it cost nine pence. And, he- <laughs> and it's like, that's people's safety. You know, it's like, if it's supposed to be the most important to keep the, you know, to keep the, you know, public safety, isn't that, wouldn't it be the priority would be to get this out to as many people as possible? And the way in which that they are telling people, um, to how to protect themselves mm. how to you know it's kind of it, you, it's almost like that sort of placebo pacification drop and cover well there were kind of they, moment well there are a lot of people who say about a lot of the precautions about nuclear war so a lot of it does nothing it is just meant to calm the population down you know, just calm people down so they, yes. you know, there won't be like riots in the streets beforehand and all that. But, yes. they real, but then you realise if this actually happened, then, you know, we, basically we'd all be doomed. You know, we'd, we'd all have that, no chance. It's that there's a scene in the, in this where they find, you know, they're talking about people buying materials and whatever, and the prices yes. of everything going up and people, you know, having to board their houses up. And then they or, go, they what use is money going to be at the end? Yes. And, and I mean, I will come back to that in a minute because there is a heartbreaking moment in this film um, about a loaf of bread. And mm. uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. And the, the scene that I'm talking about is where the, people are, battling, you know, they're, they're boarding up their windows, they're piling up mm. sandbags. And yeah. then it comes to the guy whose friend is um, is a contractor. Yes, and he's had a, he's had a little um, shelter built in his garden. Yes, he? and you just think to yourself... This man is just going to hide behind, you know, to quote Zulu, uh, a few, uh, you know, a few mealy bags and wait for the attack. Well, he's got one of the most harrowing lines in it, I think. Yes. When he pulls out the shotgun and he says, and he says, uh, what if anyone tries to get in? He says, well, I've got this. And he says, and I'm not, and I'm not afraid to use it. And it's like, oh, that's quite, it is a very chilling moment. That yeah, is a... yeah. And you can see why the, you know, and I mean, the BBC went, Complete, you know, they really went into overdrive in terms of their level of bureaucracy, trying to stop. Oh, they this, panicked. They, they panicked. To stop <laughs> they film coming out. And well, the, uh, go on, pray continue. Okay, it's saying about the, you know, saying about the creation of this. It's a very strange thing, but it was created because Watkins was sort of part of this of a new wave of directors coming in in the sixties. Who the, the BBC was sort of hiring these younger directors who were a bit more experimental. They were a bit more artistic. Yeah. And, you know, and some of the other directors just sort of just did what they were told. You know, they just filmed it, and that's all they needed to do. But you had these guys who were doing like the Wednesday plays and you know play for today. Like yes. uh, for example, the War Game is actually a Wednesday play originally. <laughs> it was it was part of the Wednesday play. But yes. um, Watkins was sort of part of this new wave, which included people like Ken Russell. 
who were all yeah. they were they were more artistically minded or perhaps more politically minded. Yes. Because around about this time, the BBC had a bit of a reputation as being a bit more radical. Yes. Like a lot of its writers were sort of these quite radical political guys. You know, you had like the angry young men and all that. Yeah, yeah. So. BBC had sort of become the cutting edge of television at the time. You know, it really was set the standard yes. of what you could do on television at the time. And it's, you know, it's absolutely fantastic stuff came out of, you know, 60s and, you know, 60s and 70s and 80s BBC. You know, they were at their peak. Yes. But Watkins was commissioned to make this documentary. But at the time, there was a massive shuffle in, like, the power of, you know, the power structure at the BBC. For example, apparently someone very senior had quit well, I'd been fired, actually, and somebody else had quit in support of them. Yes. And there was a guy called Hugh Weldon, who was the head of the documentary film department, who had been promoted, uh, been pretty much been promoted to their position. Yes. And as a result of this, Watkins had lost a key supporter for his project. So at this point, the BBC has sort of landed with this film they've commissioned, and they've reluctantly given Watkins the budget. And, but they'd warned, they'd warned that the film might not be completed, because apparently they'd been found up by the Home Office. <laughs> well, it, it, were, it went to number 10. It went to yeah, the Prime it, Minister's desk. Well, apparently it was. The Home Office had caught, had heard about this, because they telephoned the BBC inquiring why they were, why Watkins was making this film. You know, they're asking, you know, they wanted to know what, why is he doing this? Because apparently Watkins had been, um, because Watkins has sent a letter to Home Office inquiring how many hospital beds they had available. Yes. And if the civil defence could provide any information, you know, what they would do in an all-out strike. <laughs> so, obviously, they'd contact the BBC for anything. All right, what's he up to? You know, why is he... Yes. Why is he phoning us up? Why does he need to know so much? And you know, they were getting a bit suspicious, I think. I think, yeah. I think one of the things... I think they're thinking, is he working for the KGB or something like well, that? Well, that's one way to get, a, get on a list, isn't it? I mean, no, what well, you need to do is sort of uh, buy the anarchist cookbook from Amazon. Yeah, and... well, one of... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, one of the things that's going on at the same time as this... Remember, Cuban Missile Crisis finished not long before this kit was made. Yes. So it's very much in recent mind, you know, people's memory, nuclear paranoia stemming, which is sort of hanging over some people's heads. Yes. And at the same time as well, the CND are, are a very big movement at this point. You know, the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Yes, yeah. Probably at its height in the 60s. Well, probably in the 80s as well, but it was a bit of a lull period. But during this period, it was massive. Yeah. And, you know, there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of marches going on. And one of the most interesting things is an organization called the Spies for Peace. Right. Who were a, um, a group sort of made up of CND members. Well, they sort of come out from the, uh, the CND and they'd opened up something quite interesting at the time. They'd managed to break into a bunker. Right. In somewhere, I can't remember where it was, but they'd more or less discovered the documents of all the information about nuclear warfare and it was like a massive security breach and there was loads of, it was a big thing about this because it was like it really opened up well, a lot yeah. of incompetency of. Well, that's the thing, yeah, isn't it? it? It sort of it clearly points, you know, it points a finger at the authority and it's saying that oh. you know people are completely ignorant mm. to what is going on and it is a total, total failure on mm. the government's part, part the media's yes. part, and nobody wants to talk about the fact that you know it's if a nuclear bomb does drop. It's mm. not a case of, oh, we'll just dust ourselves off and we'll, you know, jolly British speak. Yeah. Everybody is going to be in a very, very, well, we're fucked. And, yeah. you know, and even when they talk about it in this film, and this mm. is the thing, one of the things that really, really struck me was the fact that when, after they'd evacuated everybody, after mm. the eve, you know, where they made all the plans to take effect and they mm. sort of, you know, if a war does not happen, 
it would take the British economy between one and four years to recover economically. Mm. Oh, it's, yeah. It's just, you know, which is, when you think, you know, they are evacuating over quarter of a country to certain areas and even yeah. the areas in which they're evacuating them to they could very very well they would be completely inhabitable mm. and nothing would grow yeah for you you know there would be years of you know just desolation and one of the things that makes this really interesting one of the things i love about about this film is the use of interviews Yes. Is the little is the is the little sound bites from different authority figures, you know, from like scientists, um, is it military, you know, like yes. mi- military commanders? There's um, the there's a bishop as well, and apparently all of these quotes are real. It's these just... are all based on actual actual quotes from the time. And hearing a bishop say, you know, there's, there's a line he says something along the lines of, um, "I believe in the war of the just," I and mean, then it cuts to a fantastic. It cuts to it's one of my favorite edits ever because it's so telling you know so just gets to the point after he says i believe in a war and a jest it literally cuts to the narrator saying in this car a family is burnt you know is being burnt alive yes and that yes. complete you know that's you know the hypocrisy of it you know that a man is supposed to be a man of peace is more or less justifying you know untold destruction yes yeah yeah it, it's just it, it is and it's that sort of bleakness isn't it it's the mm. it's that sort of the complete lunacy and the complete bleakness. And, you know, and the other bit that's, that really resonated with me is where they're talking about the sort of the revenge attack. Yeah, but the fact they just, they're already gearing up to go to, you know, to make it worse. You know, they were asking about the V-bombers ready yeah. to destroy equal number of Russians. And that's chilling to hear because it's like... And the, so, and, and the first thing in their mind, the first thing in their mind is, let's not survive this. No, let's just kill more people. You know, let's just, let's just, let's just, you know, kill millions of more people. It's like, oh my god, they're all maniacs. You know, all these people are insane. And it's particularly when you've got these really sort of upper middle class um, yeah. women in their pearls. Yeah, and they're saying things like, "Well, well, yes, I, I, I think, I, I think it's quite important that we bomb them. We, 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 you know, we strike back." And you just think, "Jesus Christ, this is, this is, you know, this is probably the same woman that goes to the bowls club or the yeah. cricket club or the, yeah. you know, the golf club, having tea with her friends yes. on, on on the weekend, you know, as her friends over for tea. Now she's discussing, you know, like, oh, listen, this, this bomb Russia, you know, it's, it's absolutely." More, more Battenberg Marjorie, as you know, well, as, the, as the mushroom cloud descends in the. But that's the thing. It's this very, um, it's a very surreal thing to watch because you realise that people do talk like this. You have yes. seen people, and you think, and I thought when I heard it in my in my life, I do something. Guys, you know what the implications of this is that if this happens, none of us are going to get out of this unscathed. You know, we're all doomed. You know, basically what's going to happen is they don't, I don't think anyone realizes that a nuclear bomb going off in another country is still going to affect us. Oh, well, all we look at Chernobyl, look at yes, Chernobyl. Exactly. And bear in mind, the, the, the bombs they dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki are, you know, they're, those are toys compared to what's around, was around at the time of this being made and what's around now. Yes. So if one of those goes off, we're still going to be suffering the after effects of that. So I think I'm quite worried how eager people are, you know, how eagerly people want to go for, you know, 
seem to be willing to go for nuclear war. Because I'm like, isn't that the one thing we're trying to avoid? Isn't that like the worst case scenario? Isn't that well, pretty much means if it happens, it's the end of the world. And the film's told us, but yes. this is a very bad idea. And I mean, you, you know, it's not going to be all Mad Max. No, it's going to be more likely, more like Threads and the yeah, Road. It, it's just going to be society collapses. People slowly die, pretty much. Just everyone yes. just slowly die. It's not going to be, you know, it's not this, you know, it's, it's not going to be like Mad Max. It's not going to be like Fallout or anything. It's not going to be some massive story. You know, you're not going to be the hero in this story. You're just going to no. probably just be slowly dying on a No, your a mountain, bed, so. you know, you're not going to yeah. chuck your mountain warehouse rucksack on. No. Carry a be... crossbow and fight your way through hordes of mutants. No, essentially everybody's going to be starving to death and yeah. dying of leukemia. Yeah, that's if the thing lucky. is like, yeah, that's the thing, and uh, and that is a you know that is a a scary thought. I think people sort of need to get that into their heads. That's one of the reasons I'm I I think the war game should probably be shown more because I don't think it's you don't get to see it very often. I think it no, should no, I think it should be shown, and I think it should be shown in schools. Oh, I think things like this should because I think with younger people in particular, you know, I think they need to be raised knowing yes. what the you know what the danger of it is and. And actually, because I think it's the, nuclear, the whole nuclear discourse thing is something which doesn't come up very often anymore. Yes, yes. Like you don't hear about it as often as you used to, and that worries me because I think the moment you start stop talking about something like that, yes. is is people get complacent about it, and that's, that makes me worried because you know because you know Britain we have we've got quite a big nuclear stockpile in Britain, not so much as like say like like France has got a massive one. France is France's one is ludicrously big. And, you know, now we've got, like, rising tensions again between, you know, America, Russia, and all, you know, all that. And that terrifies me, you know, the idea that those are there, those still exist. Well, yeah, and, you know, the fact that there's, you know, this certain, indiv- this this reality TV star um, mm. is, you know, very, has his, has Quite his gung-ho about it. grubby little mitts on it. And he's quite gung ho about it as well. Yes. He, seems, he seems very eager to use it, which worries me because seeing, I don't think we've seen a world leader that eager to go, no, I'm going to atomize you to oblivion. Do you think, that, you know, there are moments where he sneaks into the, you know, the Secretary of Defense's office and go, come on, just let me push it once. Just once. It's no like, one will notice. No one, no one will notice if North Korea's gone. Come on, just let me press the button once. I know. It's, and it's. Come on, Donald, back to bed. I think every, politician, every sort of world leader should be forced to watch this and Fred's back to back. Yes. They should yes. be sat down and forced to watch it. I mean, like, they can't leave the room, you know, they can't go for a, a toilet break, you know, they no. have to be yes. sat down and made to watch it just to sort of go, right, you've got the power to stop this, you know, you've got the power to, you know, not let this happen. Why are you letting this happen, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I loved, and, and one of the interesting things is that people kind of, the, the way in which before everything starts, you know, before everything starts falling apart, mm. is it's kind of depicted as a cosy catastrophe. Yes. You At know, first. Yes. Then things yeah. happen. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, and I think it's, the other thing as well in the UK, obviously, we don't have armed police officers. Mm, but now, because the assassin. see police officers particularly dressed in the way in the uniform that they were in the classic the, the classic bobby yeah. you know the helmet and the you know the old, the long coats and all that the classic yes the dixon of doc greens are looking yes. policemen with a rifle yeah and they're all being armed and it's the bit where they're shooting you know they're um killing the wound you know all the, the sort of killings. yeah that is a very 
horrible scene to watch. And the execution scene where they execute a group of looters. Yes. That is a very disturbing moment to watch, I think, because it's... It's very, very real, isn't it? It's very, very real. It looks more like a scene you'd see from, like, um... You know, in, like, Latin America, where they had, like, the coups and all that, you know, like, yes. and all that. It looks way more like a scene from that or something than you think this is Kent. You know, this is, this is a, this is a town in Kent. Yeah. And yeah. the police, and the police are shooting people. You know, it's like, that is a very <laughs> disturbing thing to watch. Yeah. And I, I think, and I, I mean, it is that idea, isn't it, that it's Kent? Yeah. It's typically British. You know, it's the Kent is that, is a typically British place. Well, Southern British. So it's yes. very much the home counties. Yes. Stereotypical England. So using that as your, as the setting is, you know, perfect for it because it sort of encompasses a very recognisable Britishness. Now, I mean, if you were really, really sadistic, if you were mm. really, really sadistic, you could class this as a Christmas film because... Yes, it does end at Christmas does, as well. The film ends at Christmas and there is this awful, awful scene at the end of this. Oh, it's the church, isn't it? They got the church... And then you have somebody with a record player. He's playing he, it manually, isn't he? He's playing it manually. It's and it's silent night. Yeah, this is all. This is congregation all there singing. We got all, the priest up there, and they're all are. Oh, and they're all burnt, and they're all. Yeah. They, you know, they're clearly suffering with radiation sickness. Yeah. Everything is is dirty. Everybody it's, is dying. It's that desperate clinging to hope, people. You know, there's just that, just some, something. You know, they they need something. And they don't know, they don't know what to do, but they they just holding on to something just to sort of, just to save them. You know, yes. just to sort of, they just need some. I think they're all kind of aware that you know they're all doomed and all that, but like they just want something. They want to know that yeah. things might get better. You know, even if there is the possibility of like an afterlife or something like that, they just need that just to sort of go. Now, we need to make we need to make sense of this somehow. We need there to be something just to look forward to. Yeah, and here's the, here's the other thing as well. There is blood in this. I mean, it's shot in black and white, so it's not like sort of yeah. you know you don't. It's not like sort of yeah. Kensington gore. No, this is no. not like you know uh, brain dead. You know this. No. Is, however, the scenes where people are caught out mm. in the flash. Ah, oh, there's the famous bit with um, there's the civil defence. Are going yes. around people's houses, aren't they? And yes. it's pretty much evacuating everyone. Yes. And it's the, the narration where it mentions, uh, but is it, oh, it's damaged the up to an eyeball will cause like melting. Yes. Of the eyes. You don't really even see anything. You just see people holding their hands over their eyes after like a negative, you know, the screen goes negative. Yes. And there's just two people holding their eyes. But even then, that, just the thought of it. And the narration helps the sort of just that detached coldness, you know, that sort of, Stereotypical Britishness, you know, like yes. that sort of news newsreader style. Yeah, it, well, very much so. And there's that, there's that, this incredible line where it says that a nuclear blast is described as resembling the sound of an enormous door slamming in the depths of hell. That is one of the most sort of, well, that sums it up. It's just, it, but the way in which it's delivered, with the images that are actually happening at that moment in time, because you have a family whose young child's face has essentially been melted, mm. hiding underneath a table whilst everything around them is shaking and falling apart. Mm. And then it shows the, the firestorm mm. uh, and people being sucked into the fire and then the carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah. And it's just, it is so 
so devastating to see. Well, there's a really interesting story about that with the whole, you know, the, the fires going off, and you got you got the firemen all out as well, haven't you, with all the, you know, yeah. doing obviously to put out the fires. And I, it was a really interesting thing I read about. Apparently, uh, Watkins was on the set, and somebody he was talking to one of the, I think the producers or one of the, the crew, and he looked over and he pointed at the chief of the firemen and said, "What do you think he does for a living?" And they were like, "I don't know. What's he doing?" He says, "He's the manager of a fireworks company." So the look on his face was proper terror because the fact that he knows what how deadly well, it's, fires can be and all that. And it's this, you know, and then the, you you get the where they're talking about the sort of disposal of the bodies and things. Mm. And there's a man stood, and he has a bucket, and the bucket. Oh, the wet the rings, isn't it? Of wedding rings. Yeah. To try and identify people from their yeah. wedding rings. That is a. It's it's got it was just images of just very harrowing imagery, you know. It's just so much. It's just and like the the fact you know the, the timing that it gives you. Mm. Oh, yeah, when the sirens go off, you've got two minutes. Yeah, and you think, oh god, what can you do in two minutes? You know, like it's what what on earth can you do to save yourself? Completely, you know. I I know within two minutes I would be able to completely void my bowels. Yeah, yeah. But that's, but that's the thing is like um. Is like the only way you'd survive is if you literally lived in your bunker twenty four seven. It's the only way you see like you get away with anything, you know. Yeah, it's... And, you know, and it's that. And then you got the other thing as well. That's you got two minutes if it's launched from um, from a traditional missile site. You yeah. have less than thirty seconds if it's in a submarine. Yes, that's. But if I remember correctly from the narration as well, this is a. Um, that the the bomb in this doesn't even hit the right target. No, it's it, everything. Air, it's, it, it, it air bursts. Is, yes, it air bursts. So, so it kills just. Yeah, and it's the idea also that in terms of the UK's ability to respond, mm. um, the the chances are they're not going to be able to. No, because it'll just like that. It'll it's just done. be. It'll you know they'll have no chance to respond. You know. Um, which I think um, Fred's goes into a little bit more on how the authorities respond to it. That goes a little bit into more detail because yes. there's a whole plot about what what happens with like the sort of like the government, what the civil service do, and all that. With this, this, this I think this focuses a lot more on what happens to the people in a way. You know yes. what happens to, or pretty much just how just things break down very quickly as well. Things break down yeah. very very quickly. Yeah, and I and I do love the scenes where it shows. Um, and it sort of does a bit of world building, like it shows the lead up yes. to what happens. Like it shows, um, pretty much the context is, isn't it? Um, conflict breaks out over the um, east and west German border. Yes, and then you which have most a riot. Pe- yeah, which most people consider to be the sort of the, the most, probably the most likely way it would all start. It'd be some sort of dispute on the border. Yes. And it depicts, and I, I love this, it's that scene with the, um, they show the American soldiers and they're interviewing one of their officers. And more or less, he's, he's more or less he's saying about um, he, he he clearly doesn't know what's going on and he's terrified yeah, about well, the prospect of this happening because he's like, oh my god, I'm af- I'm having to actually be the one who's got to do this. You know, I'm actually the man who has to press, you know, push the button yeah. and fire this thing. And he talks about you know the fact that if they start, everybody starts exchanging these nuclear weapons, then God help us all. Because... Yeah, because you know he's he's away, so we're all doomed. Yeah. You know, and it's it's an incredible, incredible piece of you know. In forty four minutes, 
Mm. This is, you know, incredibly powerful. Oh, it packs, it's, it packs some, even more of an emotional punch than some films which last, you know, like two hour films. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I mean, you know, it's that sort of, and I think one of the things is it takes, you know, the idea of the law abiding citizen mm. and then see what happens, you know, when you get the raid mm. on, um, the, the food places. Yeah, because then it has that shot of that, you know, the, the middle class woman in her fur coat and pearls. Mm. And then it cuts to the bodies um, of the soldiers who are posted there burning alive, you know, who are being burnt. Because what happened is, is pretty much you've got, a, you know, a whole population of people who have essentially been failed. You know, they sort of yeah. governments failed them. You know, they, they, the one thing supposed to do is to keep them safe. And it's completely failed at doing that. So yes. obviously people are going to people don't know what to do. People are going to panic. People are scared. You know, people instincts will kick in you know they will just do what they can to survive and that's the sad thing about it is yeah, um, it says you know there's a there's, there's that great line isn't it when morale fails ideals fall or may go and behavior becomes more yeah. primitive more of a thing of instinct because people you know people are too scared to think you know people and it's one of those things i think a lot of people can sort of look at it and go i wouldn't do that in that situation so well would you he says you know if you 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 were in that situation which was that desperate and you were that frightened it does make you question your own sort of morals a bit. It does make you question yourself. Yeah, I, well, and here's that, the other thing where the people say, oh, I couldn't do that. Well, yeah. yes, you could, because when you see mm. people at the next New Year's Day sales. Yeah. Well, or the Black, Black Friday. Friday. Where people yeah. are, you know, trampling other people yeah. to get at a TV. Yeah, but imagine this one for food. You know, you're trying to get the last... You know, a bit of decent food or, uh, you know, enough to feed your family and all that. You people know, you, will... you get into your local Aldi and there's a tin of sardines left and there's 40 other people there, but you yeah. needed to feed your family. Well, shit's going to go down, isn't it? It's going to, yeah. it's going to end badly. And that's the sad thing about watching this is the sort of this, you know, the, if this, you know, these are people you would know, you know, people. And, you know, it is that, you know, there's that sort of mentality like, uh, everyone for themselves and it's quite scared of people other than people actually getting rather than people getting together and actually trying to work out things with each other and trying to make the best of the situation a lot of people would just panic and just sort of yes. do the first thing that pops in their head because they just don't know what else to do because they've had no preparation nobody knows nobody's thank god had to live through anything like this yeah you know the closest we closest we've had is like hiroshima and nagasaki and all that yes but since then we haven't really ever come close to anything like this and that's the that's the scary thing about it, and you can kind of tell why the BBC got cold feet over this, and why the sort of authorities got very annoyed about it. Because it, it, you know, watching it, you completely lose confidence in the establishment. You know, when you watch it, you like you have no confidence in the people in charge. You go, they, you know, they they don't have a clue what they're doing. You know, none of them know what they're up to. No, no, and it's this idea of. Um... You know, and and the fact that the BBC didn't, or tried not to get it get it aired, tried mm. not to get it shown, and like we were, like we were talking off air, you know, they were more than happy to accept the Oscar that it won. Yeah, that's the bit of noise, the hypocrisy of it. But they were happy to ban it. They were happy to sort of try to bury it, and then as soon as it gets applauded, it's like, oh yeah, we'll take those and all that. And I think, hang on, I thought you were trying to bury this film. I thought this film was. You thought this was like abhorrent in your mind. So I'm reading a bit about the banning here, and I found out what it was. They, you know, the BBC panicked when it first came in. Yes. And they they sought the government consultation as yes. well. So they actually screened it 
to a um, they broke their charter of independence doing this as well. And they showed the war game to senior members of the Home Office, the Ministry of Defence, the Post Office as, as well. Well, of course. They're in, char- they're in charge of telecommunications. So, um, <laughs> and also there was representatives of the ch- military chi- uh, chiefs of staff. There was also Harold Wilson's secretary as well. Right. So there was a lot of big people in the government. And if I haven't mentioned it before, one of the things, reasons why Watkins made this film was out of pure anger. Because at the time, you know, Harold Wilson had been recently elected prime minister. And one of the sort of um, things in their manifesto that year, you know, when they got elected, was denuclearization in Britain. Mm. And the one thing they did, they increased it, if anything. So a lot of people who were like their traditional supporters were very alienated by this. Like, and hang on a second, you've just, you know, you've said you've pretty much put your campaign on the concept of denuclearization. So we're trying to de-escalate yes. this conflict. And now you've more or less escalated it even more. So, so obviously Watkins is angry about this, thinking, hang on, what have you done? You've more or less sort of lied to the people in that respect because yeah. you've put that in your manifesto. And most people look at a manifesto and think, oh, well, that's what I'm voting for then. But when, you know, when they do something completely the opposite, you know, that, you know, it's going to upset our people, obviously. But yeah, they had this um, conference, you know, they had this screening. And apparently to this day, the BBC does formally deny banning the war game. <laughs> but they formally deny that it was due to pressure from the government. They did ban it, but they say they deny it was anything to do with the government. They've always said they banned it due to like the you know the violent content and all that, yeah, and how yeah. disturbing it was. But apparently they went to some quite extreme measures to do it. For example, um, they were referring to it to it as an as a um, an artistic failure. <laughs> they were also saying um, they were calling it like a failed experiment. You know, they were more or less trying to. Or, you know, trying to make Watkins feel bad about it. Yes. Which I mean, makes it even more hypocritical, but they were happy to receive the Oscar for it. But there's a brilliant moment in this um, where they showed sort of, you know, when they they are, and it's, it's sort of listening to you talk about that, and actually this particular scene is where they, um, people attack the ammunition truck and the, they yes. kill the drivers. Yeah. And there's a guy who's seen, you know, he's, he, there's a guy, young guy and he's, he's taking the rifle and he's cocking it and he's loading the yeah. gun and he notices the camera and he turns around to the camera and shows two Vs. He flashes yeah. two Vs at them, which obviously in 1965 would be yeah. just abhorrent. But it's oh, that, that I, would, you know, that's extreme for the time, you know, but it's that idea of taking that victory sign mm. and then just flipping it round and turning it on its head. Yes. And very much, you know, giving it to them both barrels. Well, it, it was one of those things where they sort of is. Like, did we learn anything from World War Two? You know, it was one of those cases. We well, seem very, you know, really eager to go to another war. Yes, and and like we go back to this other point that you know, this one of the things we, we talked about, like the extensive research that Watkins did in this. I mean, lots of this came out of the Strath Report, mm. um, and you know. The government was trying to feed people this idea that it's going to be cozy, it's going to be like the Blitz, everyone yeah. will pull together. And this film just absolutely slapped people in the face. And it's yeah. still, I mean, it is, you know, it is the equivalent gut punch. Mm. It, it is a gut punch of a film. Well, it is, well, a, you... you know, it's the, sto- it's the storyboard to the end of the world. It is the storyboard of it. Well, here's another crazy thing I read about that the BBC tried to um, discredit Watkins. The Evening News at the time apparently deli- um, claimed that Watkins had deliberately used tripwire during the making of Culloden to right. trip the actors up. <laughs> but apparently this was originally an accusation by Equity because he'd fallen foul of Equity for his use of, like, non-actors. Right. 
because he didn't actually use professional actors, because he'd used, you know, just people from Scotland. Yes. And this was read out on the news, even though there was, like, no evidence for it whatsoever. <laughs> so, so pretty much what happened was he, he'd arrived, he'd pretty much, Watkins quit the BBC. You know, he more or less said... Yes, yes, he did, didn't he? He, uh, he more or less left, because he said, uh, you know, if you're going to do this to my work, I don't want anything to do with you. You know, I don't want anything to do with you people in that case. So he left. And his career took a bit of a strange turn, because afterwards he did one more film in Britain. Yeah. Called Privilege, which is a very strange film, because out of all his films, it's probably the most narratively based one. Mm. It's the more tr- And it's one of the very few films of a name in it as well. Which was Paul Jones, a pop singer at the right. time. So, it was, yeah. and the idea was, it's like a science fiction film about a um, the church using a pop star as a means to sort of almost like brainwash the population. That's really yeah, that's an interesting. I've not come across that one. I'll have to dig it it's, out. It's one of the sort of forgotten cult films. In fact, it's been released on what the BFI call their flip side imprint, right? Which is then pretty much it's where the BFI dig out forgotten British films or films which are out of circulation for years. You know, ones you couldn't find anywhere like they're sort of forgotten classics yeah and after that watkins moved to um, america to uh well he moved to sweden first mm. and he did a film called the gladiators which once again deals with nuclear war but this right. one is set in an alternate reality so it's like um the idea is that sort of you know the nato and warsaw pact have decided to avoid nuclear war what they'll do every few years or so they'll send a group of soldiers into this sort of game Right. Where they have to fight each other. Okay. <laughs> and this is what happens is NATO have sent in a lot and it's the NATO team is made up of like, um, you know, there's Americans, there's British, there's like West Germans, there's South Vietnamese soldiers. You know, they're all from yeah. the sort of NATO and allied countries. And then the, the other one, they just more or less send the Chinese in instead. You know, it's like the <laughs> representatives from the People's Liberation Army. And uh, what happens is the plot is, it's got multiple different plot lines. Like, um, one is like the soldiers moving through, and there's like tensions between them as well. And then you've got um, the generals are all watching it as well, and they're controlling what's happening. Right. And they and the worst bit is they got like the generals are deciding about using certain weapons on this on their own men. Sometimes you're like you know oh well that one's a bit insubordinate. Quick, have some fire put into them. You know you know get them on you know on their feet a bit. <laughs> and at the same time they they sat there eating food while watching it. And it, oh, it's and there's another bit, the storyline where a um, there's a French student who's planning to break into this whole thing and sort of bring it down. Yes, because it's more or less being used just to prop up the establishment sort of thing. And then halfway through the plot, um, the the Allies capture a Chinese soldier, right. this Chinese girl. Yes, and more or less, her and one of the British soldiers sort of um, get this idea of these people don't care about us. You know, they more or less just using us just to sort of for their own ends. So they decide they're going to do it all by themselves. Right. And they go AWOL. And it's a really harrowing scene. They arrive at the at the, at the base where they're supposed to, you know, they're supposed to get to. And as they arrive there, the police arrive. Right. And just beat them savagely. And it's like, all done in freeze frames. And they are some of the most gruesome freeze frames I've ever seen because it is just these two people just being savagely beaten. But after that, he also follows it up with um, Punishment Park. Yes. Which I've lent to you as well. Yeah, which is yeah. one of his... And it is on the watch list for... Oh, well, i got to try and get around to it today at some point. That is a very, very, very harrowing film. Because that was made early 70s. So that's made post, you know, you know, it's, you know, yeah. you know well into the sort of, um, well, post-60s, uh, just pre-Watergate. Mm. 
So Nixon's in power at this point. Right. And the plot is, um, there's what was known as, I think it's the Patriot Act. Right. No Patriot Act. No, no, I can't remember what his name was, but, oh, I can't remember what the name was, a Patriot Act more recently, but this act, what it essentially said was, if you were deemed to be a, um, like a subversive in America. Yes. You could pretty much get arrested for it. Right. Quite, quite easily. So what the idea is, they've put this one, this act into full effect, into like its most extreme example. And what they've done, they've captured these group of dissidents who are like, you know, they're sort of your typical ones, you know, they're sort of, um, you see your peace protesters, they're sort of like, uh, some of them like the sort of feminist types. Yeah. And then you've got like, um, Black Panther sort of type ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. So like, there's all the sort of representatives of like the sort of counterculture in the sixties. And what's happened is, um, they, you know, they've been brought to this place where they've been put on trial mm. and they've been given like an ultimatum. They're right. told either you serve your sentence or you can do punishment park, which is a area of, um, I think the Californian desert <laughs> where they have to traverse over it and get to this flag. Right. And what they're told is if you reach this flag, you receive like a pardon. Okay. But over the way, they're going to be chased by the national guard and the police. So it's a bit like sort of battle royale slash turkey shoot. Uh, yeah, well, well, to be honest, Watkins did it with gladiators and this before, so you know they got everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. But with this, it's very depressing to watch because there's um, well, all of the actors they used for the trial scenes were like real activists who Watkins had met. Right. So pretty much when they're speaking, they're more or less just allowed to speak as they want. I think Watkins more or less put a situation in place and just let the actors go. Right. And more or less just told them, just say, you know, say what you like, pretty much. And it's, oh, it's it's harrowing to watch some of the scenes, especially, um like, there's a scene where one of the soldiers panics. Yeah. And he opens fire on a group of them and ends up killing one of them. And Watkins is actually in the film as well, but he only narrates. You never see him at all, but he's, he's supposed to be the filmmaker. Right, okay. And he's, and there's a scene where he he's interviewing this soldier. Hmm. And he's, and he's saying to the soldier, you know, why did you do that? Why did you kill these people? And this soldier just doesn't really know what to say. I mean, you it's, know, it's a, it's a kid, pretty much. He's, yeah. You know, he's a kid. He's like, uh, I don't need... He's pretty much all about Vietnam. A lot of his work is, you know, all about yeah, what I mean, was going on. Actually, it's quite interesting with it, you know, where you, where you talk about that. Because obviously, coming back to war games, where, you know, they talk about the after the event... You get lots and lots of people who, when they're being interviewed, they don't talk. They're basically mumbling. Yeah, well, and it talks about the apathy of mm. being set in with people, and then it's got these horrible images of all this food piling up and sort of mm. and the, me- the, the the general decay of everything around them. Mm. Which again, he's you know, I mean, as a filmmaker, he is not afraid to you know he doesn't pull any punches. He lets you get it. Oh, definitely. Well, there's a, you know, for, you know, yeah. for want of a better word, both barrels. Well, one of his last film, his last film, which he hasn't made a film in 18 years, unfortunately, but his last film was, um, came out in 2000 and it was called La, La Commune. Right. Which is about the Paris Commune of 1871, where it's supposed to have been the, after the Franco-Prussian War, the people of Paris more or less took over the city and kicked right. out, and kicked out the government pretty much and took over it themselves. Yeah. And, what happened at the end of it was the army came back and it was what was known as the, um, I think it was known as like the bloody week. Right. Cause the reprise, the government reprisal was like so savage. It's become infamous. And the whole thing about him not pulling any punches, 
the whole end of the film is all about just more or less depicts the executions. Right. And it's all he filmed it in like a warehouse of all once again of non professional actors all just picked up from a lot of them just from the streets of France, just regular people he got his hands on. <laughs> and it's a great moment where there's a line of people all waiting to be shot. All in line. Yeah. And they're all looking into the camera. Yeah. Like just the looks of feet you know, some of them are looking straight into the camera of this sort of like accusatory glare. Yes. And that's one of the things that makes, I think, Watkins a particularly harrowing filmmaker to watch, because he does... Well, again, you know, here, you know, he uses the thousand-yard stare, doesn't he? Yeah. And okay. He, and it's, you know, and it's in pretty much all of the interviews, that thousand-yard stare is there. So, oh, yeah. looking at this one now, because mm-hmm. obviously we, we, we've got another segment that we're going to be coming on to in a little bit. Yeah. Is, where would you come in on a score with this, and is there any particular moment for you that, 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 that will... They, stays with you mm. well for me i'm gonna have to because i think because i think it's such an important film and i think it's an essential film to i think everyone to see i think it's you know it's a must watch and i think you know it's worthy of study it needs to be watched i think it's still unfortunately very relevant today so of film i wish wasn't relevant yes but i would have to go for a, a solid 10 i think just to sort of just just every you know how it works his influence on film as well i think he's had you know, it's a docudrama form as well, yes, been used yes. since, but this one, I think Watkins does it better than anyone else, I think. Yeah. So what's the, so what is the moment that, that you take Ooh. away from this? Uh, for me, I say is that ending, you know, in the church, mm. that, I think that of all the moments, that's one of the most sobering and just as a moment, it's so, it's beautiful in one way. Yes. And bleak and so depressing and bleak in another way. You know, it's one of those scenes where it's like, it's so, you know, it's just a clever idea of his, but it's so, it just encapsulates every, the hopelessness of that situation. Everything yeah. we've yeah. seen so far, all the desolation, all the, the worst things, you know, worst things you can imagine. And it's just that glimmer of hope people have. So it's, yes. it's somewhat bleak and somewhat hopeful at the same time. It's kind of hard to tell. I mean, for me, I this is a ten. This mm-hmm. is most certainly a ten. I think it, it's something that should be seen by everyone. Yeah. Um, and the, the one line that sticks out for me is the scene where you have this sort of elderly gentleman, and he's got his hat and he's got his glasses on and his big coat, and he talks about um, he's he's walking home. Um, and his mother has made uh, a loaf of bread mm. and uh, somebody offers him a pound note in exchange for a loaf of bread. And he says, you can't eat a pound note. And, they describe, exactly. and it describes as yellow, worthless rocks or worthless yellow rocks. It's um, it's just so powerful. Mm. And the way in which that he delivers it, because, you know, obviously he's not an actor. You know. Not even probably some bloke from Kent, just a bloke yeah. off the streets. And it is just so harrowing. It is just so harrowing, so heartbreaking. Um, and it encapsulates um, the, you know, the the sort of the futility of it all. Mm. And that idea of nobody wins. Yeah. Nothing's been gained. No, no, you know, it's, it's not like other wars where, like, you know, people have gained land out of it or... Uh, you know, just everyone's doomed. You know, everyone. And for years to come. Yeah, everyone's signed their death warrant, pretty much. Everyone is, 
like the whole of mankind has more or less been doomed without the permission, you know, without anyone's consent, you know, no, like yeah. the, the people have had no say in this, you know, they've more or less been dragged into it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so for me, it's a 10 from you. It's a 10. Yeah. Um, like I said, it's, it's essential. It's essential viewing. And it's oh, very, yes. very much one of the most terrifying films um, that I have watched ever. And I implore people to check out um, Watkins' other work as well. Particularly Culloden is yes, a good place to yes, start. Yes, Culloden is, is super. Quite access. It's success, more accessible than some of his later works. A lot of his later works do fall in on a very... They're very they're very good films, but they're very, very, very long. Yes. They're very long films. He I does mean, like a very long the, run time. The 14-hour film that is Journey. Yes. Uh, might be a little bit much for me. Um... After what, I haven't watched that yet. I think I'm going to watch it in like segments. I think I'll watch it in like our segments. <laughs> so like, I think I think it was released like that at one point. Yes. Now we are now going to discuss some of the greatest horror and sci-fi films never made. Because we kind of got into this last night. So. Yeah, we were having a bit of a chat about this and sort of just escalated into something completely, <laughs> just completely escalated beyond. God knows what. So I, I think, you know, because it's definitely worth it, because there are some absolute films that you just how was this never made? Some of them you can you can understand why they weren't made, but some of them you think, oh, God, I wish it was, though. Yes. <laughs> like, and I mean, I'm going to kick things off. I'm going to dive right in and just kick things off. Um, there are some incredible um, Hammer films. Yes. That never got made. And for yes. me, the one that I just cannot believe never got made was Carly, Devil Bride of Dracula. Oh, yes, I believe that got adapted by the BBC recently. Well, I hope so, because it's, they did, it's they an did. awesome idea. It's an well, awesome idea. Is it the Indian vampire film, yes. wasn't it? it was like, yes. Well, last year, for Halloween, Mark Gattis adapted it for as a, as a radio play. All right. Oh, I love called, it. Called The Unquenchable Thirst of Dracula. Right. Okay, I'll and have to dig that out. It starred, I think, um, I can't, I can't remember something, I have no Sanjeev Bascars in it. Right. So they did it as like a, um, a, you know, like a feature length, uh, you know, a feature length radio drama. Yeah. Well, I mean, because uh, the idea behind it is, you know, I mean, at the time, I think it was 1975 where, you know, Hammer's on their, la- kind of on his last legs of it. Yes, it's, it, it's dying a death. That's um, when they were really just trying, trying anything which stuck, you know, like, um, Cap, you know, Captain Kronos, which I, I really enjoy, Captain Kronos, but they yes. were really, they were trying out new things. Uh, Captain Kronos, which is, you know, it's a swashbuckling film, you know, it's like. And we'll throw some vampires in there. Musketeer films, which were popular at the time. Exactly. Yeah. You also had, um, you, you love, is it Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, oh, which is I a love, martial I love, art. I love that a, film. It's a kung fu, it's a yeah. kung fu movie. It's brilliant. Cause, you know, cause at the time, they were cashing in on the whole sort of um, martial arts movie craze at the yes. time. So, so at this point, Hammer weren't really setting the, you know, they weren't setting the sand. They were kind of just following everyone else. And also the films have become increasingly violent as well. Yeah, well, the, like yeah. the last Frankenstein film, Frank, you know, is it? Uh, Frankenstein, the monster from hell. Yes. Is a very, very grim and depressing film, actually. It's a very brutal film. Yes. Compared to their other output. Oh, Almost point, it's kind of depressingly brutal at times. Yes. Well, you know, and this one, you know, the, the um, you know, the idea behind sort of um, Carly Devil Bride of Dracula was that you'd have a younger Dracula having yeah. um, who has a has a tryst um, with Carly, um, <laughs> and you know, later on, um, 
the, you know, they would produce the, uh, produce a child, and you know, then you've got you know, and later on it would bring back um, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing back mm. into the you know to play their parts. And it would have been a fascinating, fascinating film. Absolutely, I'm probably, fascinating. I'm probably just just an accurate depiction of India as um, Temple of Doom. I imagine. <laughs> Are you trying to say that's not how India is? <laughs> Let's leave it to pick out Carly was, you know, completely. <laughs> I, I love the final film. It completely misrepresents because Carly's supposed to be the goddess of like rebirth and um, yes. destruction, but also rebirth and all that. You know, yes. apparently, like you know, rebirth needs to come from destruction in a way. You know, yes. something needs to die. So I mean, the final film completely turns Carly into the devil. <laughs> pretty much, you know, you can tell. You can tell why India was a bit sort of guys. Come on, <laughs> it's like yeah, it's like. <laughs> it's like we're not eating monkey brains over you. Come on, mate. It's like yeah. So come on, dude. What have you got? Give me one. Well, I'm gonna have to go for an obvious one just to start off. You know, I think it's the ultimate in terms of unmade films. It is Jodorowsky's Doom. Oh yes. It is pretty much the apex of um, of the you know the, the holy grail of unmade films because. The story behind it, if people haven't seen the documentary about it, I don't know why they haven't, because I don't know what they're doing over their lives, but they should be watching it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's the most fascinatingly insane story ever. You know, it's in terms of like, you know, the stuff they wanted to do, it was going to be like seven hours long. The plan was uh, that the soundtrack was going to be done by Pink Floyd and Magma. Yes. It was going to, Orson Welles was going to be in it. Dali was going to be in it. Yes. Although Dali was only going to be paid for one day, and they were going to use a, because he was asking for a million dollars per day. Yes. So what they did, they filmed, they were going to film him for one scene, then use a puppet for the rest of it. <laughs> so they wouldn't have to pay Dali extra. Another thing that happened with it, uh, Mick Jagger was going to be in it as yeah. well. What? The art, the character design was by Mobius, you know, Jean Giraud, yes. the famous comic artist. Giga was gonna, des- was gonna do some of the design work for it. It was absolutely insane. And if you know anything about Yodorovsky as well, that man is, he, God, God knows what he's up to half the time. He's just a lunatic, the man is, cause he was gonna cast his son. Yes, um, um, Brontis. Brontis in the, in the lead role. And, and he said, this- Turn him into Paul Atreides. Yes, well, he sent him off to to train martial arts and uh, yes, gymnastics like a, for like two years before anything like, else. He was like a top French martial artist or something yes. like that. Was tra- was training him, like you know, was going to train him and turn him into this warrior. But <laughs> uh, what makes Dune interesting is what came out of it. Well, the fact no, Alien came yes, out of it. Yes, and I mean, because Dan O'Bannon yes. wrote yeah. Alien because he was depressed because Dune didn't get made. Yes, because because he didn't because he was so upset that Dune had fallen through. He wrote Alien, so things did come out of it, which is crazy to think how much you know has come out of this one film. And I mean, the documentary when you listen to Jodorowsky talk, the guy is certainly a few sandwiches short of a picnic. But what I like is though his enthusiasm is very infectious. Yes. He's got this sort of. I can kind of understand why people got caught up with it because he had such an enthusiasm and such a. Um, it seemed to me had such a like a natural charisma to him. Yes, that people were willing to go with this nonsense. You know how non- much nonsense he was coming out with because he just had that sort of. Well, he believes it, so you know we do as well because he's just got he's got so much belief in what he does. He's got so much enthusiasm. Yes, I mean he switches completely bonkers. Well, another one thinking about Dune, you know, because eventually, you know, as we all know, Dune would be made by um, David Lynch. Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, there's a film which he's been trying to make for years. 
ever since he made a race ahead, and right. he's never managed it. It's called Ronnie Rocket. Okay. Which is another one of the sort of classic, unmade science fiction films. And it was about, it was a story of a detective seeking a mysterious second dimension, <laughs> aided by his ability to stand on one leg, who was being, st- <laughs> who was being stalked, stalked by the donut men who wield electricity as a weapon. Yeah, there might also, be a reason why that, that, that might not be getting made. But, but at the same time, it's the tale of Ronnie Rocket, who was a teenage dwarf rock star, who needs to be plugged into an electrical supply, which gives him power. So he can produce music. Of course. Of well, course. But there's, you know, looking into unmade films, you do fall down a rabbit hole with them. You do oh, find. Yeah, yeah. Now, my next pick is. Um, it's a David Fincher film. Oh, yes. And it's called Torso. Yes, I was reading a little bit about that and last it's night. Based on the graphic novel by Brian Michael Bendis. Based yep. on Elliot Ness's true life pursuit of a Cleveland serial killer. Mm. And at one point, they had managed to get Matt Damon signed up. Gary Oldman was signed up. Casey Affleck was signed up. And Rachel McAdams. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, it sort of, um, it just kind of, it was just one of these films that just slipped into development hell. Which is the worst. Because there's a list in Hollywood of scripts which haven't been produced. Yes. And they they get voted every year, like, which is the best of them. Yes. And eventually some of them do get picked up, you know, because like, they're one of those ones that has, like, the most potential to be a good film, but for some reason hasn't, you know, hasn't been produced yet. Yeah. But it just, it was one of those things that just sort of just fell apart. Mm. It just kind of fell apart. He made um, the, um, Benjamin Button and, you know, and basically, you know, he, he, he just, it just, he just got too big and, and he sort of, he sort of had a bit of a falling out with Paramount. Oh, um, no. And then that, it just sort of, the whole thing just slipped away. I think it's a great, great, I, it's such a missed opportunity. Such I, a missed opportunity. I've got one here, which might be one of the most bonkers ones on this list. Go for it. There was going to be a Gladiator sequel. Yeah. <laughs> Nick Cave was going to write it. Oh, yeah, come on. I know this one. Go for it. I, I, I absolutely love it because it's so off the wall and so because apparently I think Nick Cave wrote it half as a joke yes as a bit as a bit you know as a bit of a joke apparently and the plot was it was going to follow Russell Crowe again but he dies at the end of Gladiator doesn't he uh, yeah that might sort of uh, cause a few problems well the plot is he's re- <laughs> it's Maximus is constantly reincarnated as an immortal warrior in a story whose theology would encompass both the pantheon of Roman gods and Christianity and Maximus's first task is to kill Jesus because the gods are jealous of his increasing popularity. <laughs> and would have spanned just beyond every conflict from ancient times up to Vietnam and beyond. And apparently, uh, Cave brought it to Crow. Who, uh, you know, Crow would ask Cave to write it first. Yeah. So he brought it to Crow, and apparently, um, Crow's response was, don't like it, mate. <laughs> But apparently, Ridley Scott has said that Crow actually didn't want to let it go first of all, and tried to get it to work for a while. And he says, as a piece of storytelling, it works brilliantly. It's just insane. But apparently, the idea of Roman theology was Crow's idea originally. But apparently, Cave and do you know what Cave was originally going to call it? Come on, then what was he going to call it? Christ Killer. <laughs> Which is brilliant. I think. I think I would love that film to have been made because it's one of those. Even if it was awful, 
I mean, it could. It, it would have yes. been, but it would have been fascinating to watch. Yes. And, I, and if Nick Cave is involved, I think I'd be ten times more interesting because I can imagine you know the soundtrack to go with it. Well, <laughs> use the other thing as well, and I love this. This is another unmade Hammer film, and just the title, just the title, just listen to the title on this: Zeppelin <laughs> versus Pterodactyls. I've heard about this. And I remember around about in the 70s, they were trying to cash in on the Nazi exploitation yes, genre yes. with the Savage Jack boot, which was going to feature um, Peter Cushing as a Nazi. <laughs> well, I mean, he would and, go on to, be, to play a Nazi in Shockwave, wouldn't he? Well, the thing was, though, they'd made a poster for it, which yes. Hammer did all the time. Apparently, they used to make posters first before yes. the film had been made. So they yes. got they got very presumptuous quite often. You know, Ham, you could give Hammer one thing. They were a bit over-enthusiastic well, at times. Golden, so. You know, Golden Globus and Canon were infamous. Mm. Infamous. Particularly what they would do is, before they would go to... Have you seen um, Electric Boogaloo? The I haven't. Oh, I've the, told oh, this God. It's just, it's just the most amazing, amazing piece of filmmaking. Of it's just amazing. Canon more or less... Didn't Canon more or less prove to be their own undoing? Oh, yeah, they managed to just completely shoot themselves in the foot at every opportunity. But I've gathered, for the most part, they didn't have a clue what they were doing. No, but what they would do is they'd go to Cannes and they'd they'd have, like, um, they would just have, like, a load of posters made up, usually featuring Charles Bronson or Chuck Norris, um, because they'd have two piles of scripts for the Chucks, for the two Chucks, one for Charles Bronson and one for Chuck Norris. And they would just sort of, you know, they would go, oh, look, we got this, we got this idea, it's going to be, you know, and I'm sort of, you know, to, you know, making this bit up, but this, you get the gist. You know, we're going to have Chuck Norris, he's going to be roundhouse kicking a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and it's going to be this, it's going to be that, and then, you know, the people would invest in it, and then they would take the money to make another film. They'd um, have an idea first, and then not really do anything with it. Yes, because they were original, because obviously they made Masters of the Universe. Oh, yeah. Um, with, so they wanted it to be a franchise, didn't they? Yes, they did. And they had, you know, and they started putting together things for the sequel. Mm. Um, but at the same time, they had also greenlit Spider-Man. Okay. Um, and Michael Dudikoff was apparently signed on to play Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So they'd started putting the sets together and they'd started putting some of the costumes together. However, everything went tits up and they couldn't afford to make them. So what they did was they turned the sets and the costumes from that from those two films into the Jean Claude Van Damme film Cyborg. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but back to Zeppelins versus pterodactyls, you, you know, you've got this idea that you know you've got the Nazis there, um, you know, they're after the pterodactyls, they're going to sort of you know bring them bring them back somehow, and they're using the zeppelins to sort of capture. Them. How on earth did anybody think one of the slowest moving flying objects in the world would ever ever be a good idea versus a pterodactyl? Uh, my question is as well. Loads of films do this, like the most recent Jurassic World film did this, when they get this whole thing. Let's get a prehistoric monster and turn it into a weapon. Why? Yeah, it's like. It's up against tanks. Now, in and terms of, fighter planes and all that. So it's like, it's no contest. Just going to win in that fight. Now, do you, obviously, this is another Hammer film. Mm. And I've got to bring this up because I laughed out loud at just how ridiculously inappropriate oh, no. this is. Right? Oh, no. You ready? I don't like where this is going. So, obviously, they'd, you know, they'd done vampires and martial arts. 
oh, even no. swashbuckling uh, yeah. with Captain Kronos. Yeah. They're now going le- lesbians as well. Yes, they have. <laughs> and now we're going to dip our toe into black exploitation. Oh no! With Shaka Zulu, the Black oh. Napoleon. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things where. Um, I would like to think they would have done it quite respectfully, but I really doubt they would have. You know, really. <laughs> it's just, I mean, there's a great um, TV. Um, it was a South African TV series. Yes, and it's yeah. very, very good. And it's, it's, it's very, very respectful. And it's, you know, it has a genuinely um, Zulu cast. Um, it's, a, it's, mm. it's, it's definitely worth watching. Yes, but they were going to make Shaka Zulu the Black Napoleon. Oh, God. And I, oh, and it's one of those things. I imagine it would have been awkward because I can imagine them. Well, to be honest, they could have got away with filming it somewhere like Brecon because a lot of Brecon actually think... does look like South Africa at yes. times. Like the Zululand looks a lot like Brecon except with sun, you know, yeah. sort of decent weather. <laughs> but with, uh, oh God, I worry what they would have done if they actually went out to South Africa, you know, in the middle of apartheid <laughs> as well. And that's uh, just the sort of possibilities are horrific, you yes. know, how that, how badly that could have gone. You know, it's one of those things you think, Oh, thank God that one didn't get me. You never know how badly that could have gone. You know, you know, oh, well, I don't think anything will ever, ever top The Conqueror. The, the John Wayne. Oh, John Wayne's That is a... Yeah. You know when people joke, you know, that film gave me cancer. That film literally did give the cast yes, cancer. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, including John Wayne. They filmed it on a on a nuclear test site. Someone thought that was a good idea. There's even photographs of the cast all stood around with Geiger counters, having a laugh, and I think, well, they're not laughing. They won't be laughing in a they won't be laughing in a decade's time now. No. But there is one I've got. Yeah, I discovered this one yesterday, and I'm fascinated by how bizarre this is. Go for it. There was going to be two collaborations between Alan Rene. Right. Who was a famous French art director. Yes. Who's famous for directing last year at Marion Bad, one of the most obtuse and bizarre films ever made. <laughs> yes. And Stan Lee. What? Yeah, apparently, um, uh, Rene was an avid comic reader from his childhood. Right. And he'd met Stan Lee and he became very charmed by him. You know, they apparently got along really well. Yes. So they were hoping to make a film together, two films together, one which is going to be more Stan Lee-esque and one which is going to be more Rene-esque. Okay. So in other words, Stan Lee wanted to make an art film, and Rene wanted to make a Stan Lee film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. So I think, and he, he also wanted to make a Tintin film at the same time, Alan Rene, so he wanted to do a comic book adaptation, but I would have loved to have seen his collaboration just for the sheer sort of, how on earth would have that turned out? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, mind-melting. Now, going back into the idea of sort of black exploitation, um, and of course they've had you know the you know I mean Blackula is a great film. It, it is a oh, re- it's a great it's, great film. It's got it's better than it has any right to be. Yes. I think With yes. the, when you hear the name, you think right. You no. think it's good. It, it's actually got a lot of dig. Well, he's got a lot of dignity. The you know the guy you know come on, who's the actor? Um. Oh. Ah. Damn you. Um, oh, very deep voice. Yeah, the very yes. Oh, what was his name? Let's uh, find it. And I covered this on the show. William Marshall. Yes, yes. I also love it for its tagline. <laughs> Come on, then. blood, blood sucker. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh no. Here oh. we go. Black exploitation. 
take on Jack the Ripper oh, called wow. Black the Ripper. Is that an actual? Was that actually a film, or was that only one to make? It, it was. It was um, due to be released um, around about 1975. It was going to be directed by Frank R. Salteri, um, and he'd written uh, Blackenstein in 1975. <laughs> Five. Um, I love that most black rotation film is just black something. Yes, and then basically, and, I, and it got announced that um, I think it was a Variety had reported um, that the cast was uh, there was a cast in place, but basically nobody ever knows whether or not it got made or not. Oh, so they think it might have been shelved, is it? Well, they think it got they think it got made. Yeah, but n- nobody knows where it is. But it's been lost. Somebody. And it's been lost. And the, the director died in 1982. Um, so you can't get a quote off him, obviously. No. So, but so nobody knows whether or not um, this got made. Um, I mean, have you? Uh, Blackenstein is terrible. It is terrible. Oh, it's you're joking. I, I, yeah, I know. I know. It's hard to believe, but. Um, it is. A, it's. It's not good. It's really, really not good. I can imagine trying to cash in on Black Killer a bit. I, yeah, I imagine somewhat. <laughs> yeah. So, have you got any more? I've got a really interesting one. Actually, this one's kind of legendary. Yes. In un, in unmade film circles. Let's go. It's Claire Noto's The Tourist. Right. This okay. screenplay has appeared multiple times. It's come. It's considered to be one of the greatest unmade screenplays ever. And it right. keeps coming back up. It's one of those ones that keeps getting revived and, you know, revi- you know revised and revived, but nothing ever happens, unfortunately. Yeah. It's by um, Claire Noto, who hadn't really re- she hadn't really written before, as far as I know. Yeah. And she started in 1980. And the idea is, it's by, uh, as the synopsis says, yeah, set in Manhattan in the 80s, following a beautiful 30-something-year-old executive who, um, ca- who counts herself among a secret uh, society of um, exiled aliens living on Earth. Right. Who are, des- who are desperately trying to find their way back home. But it's all about, like, the sort of... Um, it's almost like a film noir. All about, you know, living in the undercity with, like, private detectives and all that. And Giga was going to do the alien designs for it. In fact, you can find some of them online. Right. Because it's supposed to be she goes to this club where, like, all these aliens hang out. Right. And it's bizarre. It's a very bizarre-looking film... And it sounded fascinating. What I've read about it sounds fascinating. It's this, and I've, it's a, I'll have to send you it later on because a guy who follow on YouTube who does videos on unmade films. Right. And he did a video about the making of this. He did like a two part video all wow. about the screenplay. Right. All about like the different versions of it. But another one I want to bring up, thinking of, um, you know, Giga, which is one of my, this is one of my favorite examples of unmade, is the versions of Alien 3. Oh god, yeah. There's the, um, is it the William Vince Gibson? Wal- William Gibson did a version, and Vincent Ward did a version. Right. Uh, William Gibson's one is considered to be very good, actually, where it is a bit more um, more tied into, like, aliens. It's a right. bit more apartment of alien. It's a bit... The script's incredibly dated now, though, because it does mention the USSR still existing. Right. So it is very... It is quite dated, you know, about the fact they are Soviet... Yes. You know, like, Soviet astronauts mentioned at one point, so it is quite... Very much a product of the 80s. But then there's Vincent Ward's one, which is the one I find the most interesting. Okay. Like, are you familiar with Vincent Ward? I am. I am indeed. Uh, directed The Navigator, which is a personal favourite of mine. Yes. But um, with The Navigator, you know, you can tell that Ward loves his medieval, you know, oh, imagery. Yeah, completely, completely. Well, the plot of this one was Ripley ends up, at the end of Alien 2, 
on a massive wooden planet. Yeah. Which is a floating monastery. Yes. Full of monks who have more or less abandoned mankind. And it sort of follows a very similar plot to what Alien Free became. In fact, Alien Free, the actual script pilfers a lot from Vincent Ward's one. Yes. It takes a lot of ideas from Vincent Ward. But it's a fascinating film. He, he sort of described it as being somewhere between in, in, Alien crossed within the name of the Rose. <laughs> so it was like this bizarre medieval story with Alien in it. And right. it's, if you go onto his website, he's been releasing the storyboards from it and some of the art from it. Yes. As a graphic novel form. Mm. So he's been more or less going through what, he, what his original outline is. He hasn't updated it in a while. So he hasn't got to the end of it, unfortunately. But that's one of those films which I wish had got made because it just seems fascinating. You know, some of the idea, just for the aesthetic of it. Yes. Is what fascinates me the most. Yes. Now, the one film that has, that has been going around, you know, knocking back and forth for uh, forever how long now. Uh, and it's one of my personal favourite anime is Akira. I've never been keen on this being live act, or at least when I kept suggesting Keanu Reeves. Well, like, yeah. I really like Keanu Reeves, but for one, he's far too old to play the part. Yes, completely. Because, you know, how old Canada is supposed to be? He's like about 15 or something. 16? Yeah. He's yeah. supposed to be a teenager. Oh, yeah, completely, completely. Keanu Reeves is well into his 40s. And I know Keanu Reeves is part, he's part Japanese, I think, isn't he? I think so, yeah. I think he, has, he does have some, um, he does have That's some... That's what I keep... That's what I keep worrying about, is if, are they gonna just give it like a white cast? <laughs> like, are they gonna? Yeah, well, use the thing. It's been in and out of production since 2002. Isn't it Taika Waititi supposed to have been involved at most some recently? Point, at some point, but also at one point Christopher uh, Nolan was rumoured to be working as a producer yes. on it. And, you know, it's one of those things. I think it is one of the greatest anime ever made. And it's, oh, yeah. it's certainly one of the greatest manga ever written. The mangas. I, I, I actually prefer the manga to the anime because I think the manga goes in. Because, you know, the ending of the anime is completely yes. different from the manga because he hadn't finished it yet. Yes. Otomo hadn't actually finished it yet. He was nowhere near finishing the story no. when he made the film. No. But, but I think I'd like to see maybe adapt it as a TV series or something. I think that might work much, much better. But it's one if of you want to get, yeah. If you want to get the scope of the manga, I think. Yes. And give it an actual Japanese cast, or at least an Asian cast. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> but I don't, want, I don't want Ghost in the Shell again. Mm, yeah. Now, just to finish up, because I just love this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely love this. It's back to Hammer. Yeah, oh God. <laughs> And it's the last one, I promise you, folks. And they were going to do in a kaiju action. Oh no! They were going to do Nessie. Oh yes, I've heard about this. Thinking of kaiju. Do you know Alex Cox? Yes. Uh, director of Sid and Nancy yes. Walker, Straight to Hell. Yeah. He asked Toho if he could make a Godzilla film. <laughs> and I, if I can dig this up now. He is a copy of the letter he sent to them. Right. And it's absolutely bonkers. And to be honest, I wish it got made, because it's just too interesting not to, you know, to at least be, even if it had been bad, it would have been interesting, you know? Well, here's the thing, right? They went so far into production. Right. They had, uh, Terisho, uh, Nakano. Yeah. Uh, the man who obviously created Godzilla and all the props and everything else. He yeah. created Nessie. Oh, right. So yeah. it was a collaboration, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So they, you know, they had Nessie. They they had started it. And then 
Um, it just, again, it just sort of started falling apart. And, and I do think that if they'd stuck to their guns, I think it could have been the one thing that might have saved them. Well, let's have a look here. I've got a copy of the, um, the letter that Cox had sent Toho. Right. And it is fascinating. Cause if you go online, there's a really good documentary about Godzilla, which he presents. All right, yeah. Which he did for the BBC in the 90s. Yes. Just after he didn't like movie drum and all that. I remember that. I do remember yeah, it. Yeah, great. Which I used to watch. Uh, I used to watch Movie Drome on YouTube, and that was one of the things that really got me into cult cinema. Yes. So I've got a lot, I've got a guy owe oh, Alex Cox quite a bit there. Yeah. But it says here, um, it says, uh, it says, application to, the, to be the director of a Godzilla film. Dear Toho Studio, hope you'll forgive the unusual method of writing of the, uh, I'm going to skip a bit. I'd like to apply for the post of director of one of your Godzilla films. <laughs> Godzilla's one of the most important icons of the post-atomic age. Perhaps she is the most important. I assume Godzilla is a she, given that she is, that she's produced at least one son. But, and perhaps this is something to do with her great popularity. Who couldn't, who could not love a giant, angry, fire-breathing dinosaur who's also a mother? Humorous, frightening, protective, endlessly destructive, and totally self-absorbed. Godzilla, <laughs> Godzilla is the perfect metaphor for our human, uh, for, for our human species. Godzilla has sometimes been described as the atomic bomb, but she is also surely, uh, uh, surely the men who made it. Uh, she has en- uh, endless potential for destruction and a personality unlike the sluggish Mothra or the single-minded Ghidra. Without wishing disrespect to the actors, Godzilla is always the most human character in her films. In the film, which I would like to make about Godzilla, I would like to return her to a past to the time when she and her tribe of nomadic predatory dinosaurs ruled the Earth. Show their life their pack unity. Their communication, half by speech, uh, half by tel- telepathy, and a group mind is the, in the late Cretaceous period. And there is a second bright sun in the sky, a giant comet on on the collision course with Earth. Impact of the meteorite in what is now the Pacific Ocean uh, causes earthquakes, fires, freak storms, a huge uh, dust cloud covering the sky. Godzilla and her tribe flee across a burning, uh, a burning, pr- burning prairie. Cut to Godzilla wa- uh, walking from a waking from a dream. She sleeps hunched up, giant's uh, spine tail wrapped around her. The ruins of the vast leveled city lighting and wrecked power cables flicker. Godzilla is alone. So yeah, it just goes on a bit, and it sounds like one of the most. So I kind of quest for fire. I wish this had got me because I just want to see what Alex Cox's Godzilla would have looked like, just for the sheer. <laughs> just how, how it would have went. Oh my god! <laughs> and I love the end. I, I also know that with a lady, with a lady such as Godzilla, it is indiscreet to inquire as to her age. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Oh, my I love god. the idea. I, I, I kind of think was he semi joking when he sent this thing in? Play? Yeah, will they go for this? You know, oh, let's see if let's see, let's see let's see what I can do. Let's see <laughs> if I can get away, get away with this. And if, if they if they'd given it to him, I think brilliant. That would have been absolutely brilliant. Yes, I absolutely, I absolutely love Alex Cox. He's absolutely uh, he's absolutely uh, treasure. He's an absolute treasure of a human being. Have yes. you got? I'd recommend getting his most recent book as well. All right, okay. All of, it's a book that's all about filmmaking. Excellent, and it's more or less like a course in a book form ah. and it just lists off and he, he has like recommended viewing and all that tells you watch this film to get an idea about this sort of thing and he just teaches cool. you all the basics cool and he makes some unusual choices as well for example um, he picks from a film called Spirits of the Dead right 
which was Edgar Allan Poe portmanteau film in yes. the 70s. Yes. And there's a segment on it. In fact, most of it's not considered to be very good, except the Federico Fellini segment. Right. Which is called Toby Dammit. Okay. Which yeah. stars Terence Stamp as an actor. <laughs> yeah. Who's, um, who's uh, gone to Italy to make a film, a spaghetti western being made by the Vatican. Of course. And it's wonderfully weird. And uh, Cox made the rather controversial statement of saying, I think it's Fellini's best work. <laughs> Which is a controversial statement to make. But it's a very interesting film. If I'll send you the video of him talking about it. It's Excellent. very interesting. So, my good man, our time together draws to a close. Yeah. I want to say thank you so much for being on. It's an no absolute problem. pleasure. And uh, where can the good people find you? Out there in in uh, Well, they can follow me on Twitter. I, you know, I usually just retweet nonsense, but you know, I'm hoping <laughs> to get some hoping to get some writing done in the future. Excellent. I guess some more of my work done, whenever that'll be. <laughs> and if they're in the Aberdeer area, they might see me on stage at some point. At some if point, they, if they're so masochistically inclined. <laughs> Well, Liam, as always, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I am sure you will be on very, very soon. I hope that so. Think. Right, my good man, I shall speak to you soon. Take care. No problem. Great day. Bye. Bye. And once again, I want to say a big thank you to Mr. Liam Jones for being on the episode. Um, i got to be honest, that War Games is quite simply one of the most devastating films I've ever seen. Um, so... Mr. Jones, thank you very much. So up next, we have got What the Wookiee Watched. Okay, at first on What the Wookiee Watched, we have got Bloodsucking Bastards, a.k.a. Bloodsucking Bosses from 2015. Let's check out the trailer. Hey, please... Can we talk privately? Just somewhere else. Don't call me Mandy. You guys put together the numbers for Friday's presentation yet? What presentation? Boom! Tagged your ass, pussy! You owe me 50 bucks! Hey, can I borrow 50 bucks? I'm making a pretty big announcement today. I think he's gonna make me sales manager. I'm proud to announce our new manager of sales, Max Phillips. What do we sell here? Shake weights. Our mustaches. Yeah, matrix. No, Michael. We sell dreams. That's my name. Our goal for this month. One million dollars in sales. And if we don't, we'll be forced to kill all of you. <laughs> you better do what he says. <laughs> Max is cleaning house. We're going to get this place mean, mean, Theodore. Is it just me or is this office getting darker? And colder, too. Look. Oh, yeah. The hell's going on right now? It's kind of a long story. I want you. I'm a virgin. You all are. <laughs> well, that wasn't a long story. No. Oh. We need your help. The entire office has been turned into... Vampires. 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 Vampires, yeah. Did everybody know but me? That seems that way. We need to arm ourselves. We need weapons and shit. I was waiting for you to say that. Meeting's canceled. We are losing a lot of employees. Oh, shit. 
this company sucks. Bam snack. Jeez, the vampire that takes a bite out of you is gonna be up for a week. Okay, that was the trailer for Bloodsucking Bastards from 2015. This supposed horror comedy was directed by Brian James, written by Dr. God. Yes, I really had to say that, Dr. God. And Ryan Mitz. It starred Fran Kranz, Pedro Pascal, who, truth be told, if anybody has seen him in Narcos, in Game of Thrones, he is far better than this pile of crap. Joey Kern, Joel Murray, Emma Fitzpatrick, Yvette Yates, and Justin Weir. This story is basically the idea that a corporate uh, company is going down the tubes, and in order to resurrect its fortunes, the management bring in vampires, who then just start eating their way through the corporate ladder. Um, like I said, this is just not funny. Uh, when the running gag is that somebody drinks a lot of Red Bull, you know that you are kind of uh, you kind of know you're on dodgy ground. Some of the jokes make you titter and maybe chuckle a little bit, but overall, this is fairly shoddy work. Um, I mean, if you got twenty minutes to spare and you're a masochist and really are bored, check it out. Um, I didn't enjoy it. Really, really didn't. Don't think it brings anything new to the genre at all. I hate being this negative about uh, reviewing anything, but this was not good. It really, really wasn't good. And like I said, Pedro Pascal is far better than the material is given. There's a couple interesting gory moments, but overall, it's pretty poor work, and I'd give it a 3 out of a 10. Okay, up next on What the Wookiee Watched, we have got Stakeland from 2010. Let's check out the trailer. Okay, that was the trailer for Stakeland from 2010. Stakeland was directed by Jim Mickle. Uh, it was written by Nick Dimici and, again, written by uh, Jim Mickle. It stars Connor Paolo, Nick Dimici, Kelly McGillis, Gregory Jones, Tracy Hovell, James Godwin, Tim House, 
Marianne Hagen, Stuart Rudin, Adam Scarimbola. I hope I got that right. Um, for me, this is a fantastically brilliant um, post-apocalyptic take on the vampire film. Um, I was not, I didn't sort of uh, expect an awful lot when I went into this. Um, however, I was completely blown away by it. It is very, very, very good. Um, it has elements of um, the road to it. There's um, a real... The maison scene in this is absolutely superb, and you get a real sense of a world that's dying. Um, I think, you know, um, Nick Dimitri is fantastic as Mr. He really, really is. Um, Cotto Paolo is also very, very good in this. And Kelly McGillis plays a very, very, very strong part. And actually... Um, it took me double check in the credits to think whether or not it was Kelly McGillis because she's superb in this. Um, I love this film. It is uh, it is fairly bleak at times. Um, keeping, I suppose, with the uh, the tone of this this episode. But what I would say is definitely check this one out. It is for me. It's an eight out of ten, and it's a must see. Um, it's a really, really well acted, well directed, well written piece. Um, and like I said, eight out of ten, and it's a must see. Okay, up next we have got Lights Out from 2016. Let's check out the trailer. Turn off the lights. There's this woman waiting in the shadows. I see her too. Each one of us is being haunted. Thing. Mom? Hey, Martin, what's up? Did we wake you? What? A long time ago, I had a friend named Diana. And something really bad happened to her. Everyone is afraid of the dark. And that's what she feeds on. Show yourself.
Okay, that was the trailer for 2016's Lights Out. It was directed by David F. Sandberg, written by Eric Hazer, and also written by David S. Sandberg. It starred Teresa Palmer, Gabriel Bateman, and Maria Bello. Um, it also had Billy Burke, Alexander de Parisa, uh, Alicia Vell Bailey, and I gotta say, for a very simple story based around the idea that you have um, a mother whose uh, mental health potentially may not be the greatest, um, and basic, you know, you've got this this demon that's attached itself um, to the mother, and of course it's affecting the family, and people are suspecting forms of child abuse and those type of things. Got to be honest with you. Um, is this a terrifying film? No. Does it reinvent the genre? No, not at all, but it's quite a cool idea. Um, I really, really enjoyed this one. It's um, it's kind of horror light. Um, it's definitely a Blumhouse type film. Well, I suppose it is a Blumhouse film because it's produced by them. Um, it has some great jump scares. Um, the cast work really, really well and play it with a straight face. Um I really enjoyed the performance by Maria Bello in this. I thought Gabriel Bateman as the young man in this was very good. Um, the, you know, like I said, it's very predictable. You know what's kind of happening. It's not going to sort of revolutionize horror in any way, shape or form. But it is a great kind of sort of Halloween movie if you've got sort of lots of people around who generally aren't into horror. Um, so I would definitely say check it out. However certainly check out the short film that this is based on because that is absolutely superb. Absolutely superb. What would I give this one? I'd give it a 6 out of 10. Um, I'd give it a, you know, rent it or stream it. Um, it's definitely worth a look. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like I said, nothing that's going to reinvent the genre. It's got a couple of nice little jump scares in it. Cast work really well. 6 out of 10. Okay. Our time together now draws to a close. Once again, I want to say a massive thank you to Liam for being on. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I couldn't think of anybody better to be on to discuss war games with me. Um, and like I said, it's a very, very dark film. So uh, have something nice and light, you know, to sort of uh, to, to sort of ease your mind after it. Maybe something by Lucio Fulci. Um <laughs> Oh, I've just dropped my notes. It's all going horribly wrong here towards the end. I'm very, very tired, folks, and I've had an awful lot of coffee, and it's kind of tipped me over to the other end. Okay. As always, I want to say a big shout-out to my glamorously gothy gal pals, CL Raven. You can find them over at Vitalize Radio. You can find them on Twitter, on Instagram. Go over to their webpage, uh, Raven's Retreat, Um Lots and lots of cool stuff. They've, they've always got loads going on. Loads, loads going on. My man Jay, Jay Prowse, Freddie Fenich on Twitter. Get yourselves over to his Twitter page. Always entertaining. My man Blake is back. Blake is back. Guess who's back? Blake is back. He's back on Twitter, ladies and gentlemen. So get yourselves over and follow him. Of course, my brother from another mother, Mr. Leighton Winston. You need to follow him. Ladies and gents, we've got a couple of good episodes coming up, so hopefully we'll get him back on very, very soon, of course. The other one is Gidget Von LaRue, our Antipodean friend. I'm sure she will be back. Uh, of course, we recently recorded a fantastic episode for Rebecca, um, which, is a, which is a great film, so you need to go back and look at that. want to give big shouts out to Dr. Shock, 
Josh Legary, Jay of the Dead over at the Horror Movie Podcast. Say a big congratulations to Gregor Mortis over the land over at Land of the Creeps, where he's got himself engaged. Congratulations to you, sir. Fantastic to hear you back. Um, we got Mr. Slash Chask. Oh, it's all going pear shaped now. Gareth, Mr. Slash Trash will be joining us very, very soon. Where we're gonna be talking about the burning people. Gonna be a big old episode, that one. And of course, we're gonna be joined by Jay on that. So I'm looking forward to that one. Um, of course, wouldn't be an episode where we don't say uh, a big, huge thank you over uh, to Cadavercast for uh, <laughs> Jeff and Al. Of course, Al uh, signs off our show every single week. So thank you guys for that one. Brilliant father and son team. Get yourselves over and listen to their podcast. And if I've missed anybody else out, guys, I do apologise. I'm absolutely exhausted. <laughs> so, all that is left for me to say, in the immortal words of Count Duckula, good night out there, whatever you are. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes and aeroplane, Lenny Bruce is not afraid.
It's, it's the, the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This is Al from Cadaver Cast. You've been listening to Thunder Wookie. The back.